I think in the United States, um, at least, that um, there's a general sense in the Catholic community that um, positive relationships with Jews are something that the Catholic Church encourages. The uh, texts that have been released and the ideas that have shaped contemporary Catholics are marked by uh, a real sense of warmth, a sense of, of appreciation of uh, Judaism. That's Professor Philip Cunningham and Professor Adam Gregerman of St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. They are both co-directors of that school's Institute for Jewish-Catholic Relations. Thanks so much for spending a few moments with us here at CatholicPhilly.com. We are the digital media channel of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. I'm your host, Gina Christian. Well, every Holy Week brings a renewed opportunity to reflect on the relations between Christians, particularly Catholics, and Jews. Unfortunately, for centuries, those encounters have far too often been marked by hostility and tragedy through what became known as a theology of contempt for Jews, who were collectively seen as accursed for having rejected and crucified Christ. During the Holocaust, or the Shoah, of the Second World War, some six million Jews were murdered. And less than 20 years after the war's end, the Second Vatican Council began to re-examine and heal the Catholic Church's relationship to the Jewish community. And today, more than 50 years after the Council, Professors Cunningham and Gregerman say there's both plenty of reason for hope and room for more work. Let's take a listen. Well, Phil and Adam, welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. Glad to have uh, you here. Yeah, everything's been Zoom lately, so I haven't, yeah. <laughs> Zoom and email, I haven't seen you guys in yeah, so long. It's nice to see you in person. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So my first question would be, where are we at with Jewish-Catholic relations right now at this moment? So uh, I think I think they're probably better than they ever have been, if, if you take a long view of history, by which I mean like 1,800 years. Um, so... Uh, I think in the United States, um, at least, that um, there's a general sense in the Catholic community that um, positive relationships with Jews are something that the Catholic Church encourages. And there's missteps. There are there are old um, sort of stereotypes that still exert their influence. Um, you see occasionally uh, some very regrettable things happen. Um, for example, a couple of years ago at a basketball game up in the Boston area, uh, a Catholic high school was playing a public school that was predominantly Jewish in its student body. And uh, at one point in the game, they started cheering, you killed Jesus as, as their rallying cry, <laughs> which of course is horrible. And uh, the, the schools took steps afterwards to try and correct that situation. But that's, that's uh, the, um, that, that's notable because it's exceptional, right? That sort of thing doesn't happen the way uh, it might have happened in the past. And this is thanks to the Second Vatican Council and the, the rapprochement that has been taking place between the Catholic Church and the Jewish community. Um, there's issues that still need attention, and you don't, you don't change attitudes that shaped over 18 centuries um, in a couple of decades. Uh, but we're on the right trajectory, the right path, I think. Adam, what do you think? Yeah, I would strongly agree. I mean, I do think 
um, one of the benefits of of being a, a professor who teaches historical you know surveys is you get to read texts that are hundreds you know thousands of years old and, and particularly with Christian texts about Jews and Judaism the contrast is just remarkably stark that is three weeks ago Phil and I were reading and teaching texts that were um, you know very polemical you know Christian texts often had, had negative things to say about Jews and Judaism and then we move into the contemporary period and it's uh, like night and day um, the uh, texts that have been released and the ideas that have shaped uh, contemporary Catholics, um, and I think it's it's worth emphasizing as well. Uh, the Protestant churches have have uh, done remarkable work in this regard. Um, are uh, marked by uh, a real sense of of, of um, uh, warmth, a sense of of appreciation of uh, Judaism, and. In particular, there's been a real shift towards a um, a kind of recognition that Judaism didn't end uh, in the period of the Bible. That is, contemporary Catholics will um, will speak uh, with with a sense of sort of historical perspective, so that um, we're not talking, you know, often when we discuss interreligious relations, you know, particularly for 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 Catholics and Christians, you know, sort of recognize, you know, Judaism kept developing, kept. Um, uh, evolving over time, and there is a distinctive way, I think, that both Catholic and Protestant churches have spoken about Judaism to recognize um, not sort of this abstract idea of Judaism, but rather contemporary Jews as uh, descendants of the biblical tradition, but having their own uh, sort of vitality. Um, it's it's really a remarkable time to be alive because it's um, it's extremely heartening. There's been a lot to, uh, to 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 celebrate, um, you know, beginning in the 1960s. Um, the you know, I mean, it's 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 sort of unavoidable to recognize that that this is all taking place in the in the wake of the Holocaust, in the wake of the Shoah, um, in the you know very sincere and painful, I think, uh, sort of grappling on the Christian side with this long legacy of um, polemic and hostility. And then we see the, uh, really the remarkable shift that takes place, uh, already hints of this in, in, the, in the late 40s, but uh, certainly on the Catholic side, nothing like the, uh, there's really nothing that compares to the Second Vatican Council. And I, th- I think you could say that more broadly about really all the churches. Um, and, and that just starts a trajectory that leads to what I think is a, a very, a very heartening present um, as Phil said, there have been bumps along the road, um, and we could talk about those. But I think those are um, nothing but 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 bumps. There, you know, obviously tensions that remain. But I think this is really important. None have been um, so bumpy as to I think sort of send the 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 the, the I'm trying to think of the right metaphor. Sense so, sort of send the derail the, the, derail the, the trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and there there are profound reasons for that, having to do with built up trust, that um, is certainly very encouraging to me. Um, even you know, sort of seeing some of these these tensions arise, um, the effect of them has been has been a, you know, so the most part temporary. Yeah, I want to back it up before Vatican II because there were a couple of key figures that really set the stage for that. And I'm thinking of Jules Isaac. Talk a little bit about his work and how it really laid the groundwork for that breakthrough. 
So Jules Isaac was a uh, French uh, Jew. He was a historian. He had a very um, prominent position in the French educational school system, uh, um, overseeing the curricula that were used in various courses. Um, he lost a good part of his family in the Shoah um, and uh, resolved to investigate where Christian anti-Jewish teachings had originated. And he did so from a very noble ethical position. And he wasn't he wasn't seeking to um, to deconstruct Christianity or something. He he saw spiritual. Um, um, value and and was inspired by aspects of the Christian tradition, but but and therefore felt all the more keenly how did this anti-Jewish um, stance take root and take hold? So he did uh, a major amount of research, groundbreaking research at the time. This would be in the 1930s and in the 40s, as of course when World War II was uh, was underway as well. Um, he he uh, eventually published uh, two very important books uh, in English entitled Jesus and Israel, and the second, uh, The Teaching of Contempt, which has become a sort of uh, f- um, standard phrase to describe um, the legacy of Christian anti-Jewish teaching. Um, he was instrumental in organizing or contributing to what was called an emergency conference on anti-Semitism that occurred in 1947 in a Swiss town called Seelisberg. Um, it sort of always struck me strange until I learned more about it, why they called it an emergency conference on anti-Semitism in 1947, two years after the Second World War and the Shoah had ended. It's kind of a little late. Uh, but the, they were prompted because there were still... Uh, even after the war, instances of massacres of Jews uh, in Europe, sometimes when they returned to their home villages from which they had fled under, from the Nazis. And uh, and so for the, the 60 or so uh, Christians, mostly Christians, but also Jews that, that met in Seelisburg, this was a live issue. It's like, you know, we're still now after the war go, having these uh, atrocities occurring. So Seelisberg issued a statement, a call to the churches that became known as the Ten Points of Seelisberg, uh, which called on Christians to make sure that they're preaching the gospel of love and not a gospel that promotes uh, hatred. Um, and Jules Isaac's work was a major factor in um, developing these Ten Points. Seelisberg also led to the foundation of an entity called the International Council of Christians and Jews, which exists to the present day. We'll talk a little bit about that maybe later. Uh, But it also was a primary source for the drafters of the Vatican II document, Nostra Aetate, the Declaration on the Relationship of the Church to Non-Christian Religions. Um, And uh, in that, Jules Isaac, just to sort of tie this up in a bow, in this, Jules Isaac also played a significant role because he met with uh, Pope John the Twenty Third, Saint Pope John the Twenty Third, on June thirteenth, nineteen sixty, at a time when the council was on, in preparation, and he urged the pontiff that the council needed to address this teaching of contempt legacy of that what he had studied. He gave the Pope a portfolio of his 
uh, his findings. And according to John Paul, excuse me, according to John the Twenty Third's personal secretary, the idea of the council devoting a document to Jews had not really arisen in the Pope's mind until this meeting for about 20 or 30 minutes with Jules Isaac. And uh, the meeting was in June. By September, the Pope had instructed Cardinal Augustine Bea that he should assemble a team to prepare a draft of a document on the Jews. And over several years, then, that led to eventually the issuance of Nostritate. So Jules Isaac is a very key figure. And it, it kind of shows that even a 20-minute conversation can have historic consequences. Yeah, especially if it's with the Pope. <laughs> um, so one thing I would add uh, to what Phil said is that Jules Isaac writing in the 30s, the 40s, um, and, and the Sealsburg document in particular, set the agenda for work that would take place over the next few decades. That is, he raises issues, and the group that gathered raised issues that remained live issues. And still do in some and cases. still do. Yeah, I mean, for example, you know, talking about um, the Jewishness of Jesus, talking about properly reading the uh, the Old Testament, um, recognition of the polemical functions to which you, uh, Christian texts could be put, um, the, 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 the uh, accusations of, of Jewish culpability for the death of Jesus, um, Isaac, uh, you know, sort of surfaced these issues in dialogue with others, incorporated them um, into a statement. And it's remarkable to read how sort of prescient the, um, these folks were in, in, in the 40s um, for recognizing what are the issues that are going to you know, sort of be most important to this relationship, um, you know, sort of looking back and looking forward. Um, it's a uh, it's a it's a, a very it's sort of insightful agenda that they laid out um, and was really taken up um, in the 1960s with Nostra Aetate and, and subsequently. Talk about Nostra Aetate. Tell me if you think it got it right and then move forward to the popes who have kind of elaborated on that. And I'm thinking of John Paul II. I'm thinking, of course, of Francis Benedict. Talk a little more about that. So. Um Nostra Aetate, in a very few words, um, in its fourth chapter, said a few um, epical things. One was that Jews cannot be accused of being responsible collectively for the death of Jesus, either in the first century or in any subsequent period, including today. It said specifically that one cannot talk about Jews as cursed by God as if this followed from sacred scripture. That's almost a quotation. And uh, of course, they have the New Testament in mind and certain passages in the New Testament that were interpreted for centuries by Christians as proof that God had washed God's hands of Jews, that they were no longer chosen people, that like Cain in the story of Cain and Abel in the book of Genesis, God had cursed them to wander the earth without a homeland and to always be subordinate or 
or uh, tolerated citizens in Christian society. Nostra Aetate, because it was a, a document issued by an extremely high authority in the Catholic tradition and a solemn council of all the world's bishops in union with the Bishop of Rome, um, was the first uh, ecclesiastical text to repudiate this, let's call it the blood curse charge, um, of, of any any time in history. So that that in and of itself was um, was game changing. It, it just it, it turned the relationship all around. Um, it said explicitly, quoting uh, the letter of Saint Paul to the Romans, chapters nine and chapter eleven, that um, Jews remain beloved of God. That um, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, um, citing uh, Romans 11, uh, which of course means, therefore, that there is no such thing as a blood curse, that Jews are in covenant with God, uh, and that Christians need to respect that. Um, and finally, uh, by way of summary, again, it's I'm saying more, <laughs> I've devoted more words to what Nostra Aetate said on the subject than the text itself actually it does. It needs to be said. Yeah, <laughs> that, and I think it's only 14 sentences. In, it's, uh, in Latin, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's short. Uh, but, but I do want to uh, highlight another thing that was revolutionary, and I use that word advisedly, that um, it called for Jews and Catholics to engage in study together and in friendly conversations. You will not find that in any previous documents. In fact, you will find statements urging Catholics, some as uh, recently as the 1930s and 40s, uh, to avoid conversation with Jews lest they be contaminated or corrupted by Jewish falsehoods or erroneous teachings. So, so the, the Second Vatican Council's call, and you see this, by the way, this, this craving for dialogue in the conciliar conversations about the drafts of this document as it, as it evolved, um, this call for, for dialogue and friendly conversation uh, every subsequent pope has repeated and reiterated in their own ways and in their own theological perspectives, but consistently. And they themselves have modeled it uh, to some degree. Um, we could say more about that with individual popes. It also, and, and Adam and I uh, speak to this in our, in our uh, cl uh, classes that we team teach, um, it's why our institute exists. It's precisely because of Nostra Aetate that you have a situation of a Jewish professor and a Catholic professor working together constantly in terms of teaching and writing and research and all kinds of things. Um, it, it directly is the result of this sentence in Nostra Aetate chapter four. And um, we're, you know, that, that's a sign of the times that we live in. I would say you're a microcosm of Nostra Aetate. You know? no. Yeah. And fortunately, this has been the case at a number of places. I like to think our center is a, is a, is a, is a special one, but, but, but it's been heartening to see at other Catholic universities in particular, the growth of these um, sorts of, of centers, positions, professorships, et cetera. Um, what's interesting about Nostra Aetate is it's universally praised today. Um, Phil and I, a couple of years back for its uh, 60th, 50th. Uh, 50th, 50th anniversary, um, we're at a conference with Jewish and, and, and Catholic speakers, and, and you know, everyone has good stuff to say about it. At the time, both the lead up to the document and the reception of the document was was a, a more um, um, contentious period. Um, 
there were a few issues. Uh, really, none as provocative, as difficult as the issue of conversion. And there was pressure in multiple directions about what the document would say about the favorability of, of conversion of Jews. Um, the ultimate decision was to remove any uh, explicit endorsement of the uh, of missionizing to Jews. Um, it has a sort of vague eschatological, that is sort of end time vision, um, but it's uh, it, it retained uh, none of the none of the statements. Um, uh, supporting Jewish conversion that were being debated. Um, the removal, excuse me, the, 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 um, the, the rejection of the, the deicide charge, um, or I should say the, the responsibility for, for killing, uh, Jesus and, and over time developed almost like a, you know, sort of a step up to becoming sort of the accusation of, of, of the killing of God deicide. If, if Jesus is seen as, as sort of one manifestation of, of God's presence, right? The accusation, um, that was, uh, practically universal in, in Christian thought, if not, if not Christian doctrine, um, you know, the document in many ways is sort of remembered for rejecting that idea. What's remarkable is that practically overnight, no one ever talked about that ever again, right? There are issues in Nostratate that provoke continued discussion and ought to, and are serious issues. The one about um, the the accusation of, of sort of inherited guilt um, is frankly, and I, I say this probably, you know, I don't think it's a Jew, but just sort of logically, sort of so so ridiculous on its face that the fact that it was even debated sort of strikes, I think, you know, on this side of it is almost kind of absurd. Um, you know, the sort of blatant injustice of inherited guilt and culpability, you know, sort of makes no sense. Um, and therefore, Nostra Tate, you know, sort of disposed of that idea, and then it just simply sort of never arises again. I don't mean to say people don't make accusations of that sort, but it certainly is not reflected in any sort of institutional support, statements. You don't hear priests say that. You know, all these ideas of, um, you know, sort of Jewish guilt, uh, you know, Protestant Catholic churches alike have, 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 have made a strenuous effort to avoid anything that, that, that smacks of that. Um, Jewish responses were um, mixed. Um, some wanted the document to go further. And yet, as the decades went on, the revolutionary nature of Nostratate was was recognized. And I think this is really important as well. It was followed by both church statements, gestures by popes, popes going to the Western Wall um, in, in Israel. Um, you know, there were various forms of, of reinforcing uh, the statement from 1965 in uh, a whole bunch of different sort of venues that sort of over time, I think, convinced um, perhaps you might say sort of skeptical Jews that, th that these changes were, um, uh, were real, that they were uh, lasting. And so, you know, on this side of, of Nostra Tati, on this side of the 50th anniversary, and even more so coming up on the, on the 60th, um, I think it's uh, without a doubt uh, worth celebrating the remarkable accomplishments of Nostra Tati, even if parts of it still to us read as 
not quite, of course, where, you know, where, whereas as a Jew, we sort of like, I would say sort of, I'd like it to go. Later documents, statements, et cetera, um, go there. Um, in particular, the sort of recognition of contemporary Judaism as having value and not simply biblical Judaism. This is biblical Israel. And, and, and this is a topic that I think is sort of implicit in the uh, in, in the 1965 statement, but is developed in later texts. Yeah, I'd like to, if I may, add a couple of thoughts. Uh, this is what we do when we teach, by the way, that, that um, uh, first of all, uh, Adam made a point, I think absolutely correctly, that we are on the far side of Nostra Aetate. And unless you were alive or have studied the period before Nostra Aetate, it's maybe hard to appreciate um, the change that it represents. There were Catholic theologians in Nazi Germany who were sincerely trying to, um, let's say, inoculate Catholics against Nazi racist anti-Semitic ideology. There were also some Catholic theologians who bought it hook, line, and sinker, but we won't talk about them right now. Um, But for those that were trying to uh, alert the Catholic people and, and other Christians, you know, this is inherently unchristian. They found themselves unable to develop a convincing theological repudiation of racial anti-Semitism because they had not yet begun to critique the blood curse accusation. Um, and if, if you have that as an unconscious assumption or presupposition in your thinking, then anti-Semitism kind of makes sense, you know, and it becomes very difficult to, to, to negate it if you think God has punished Jews and therefore they should have a secondary place in society. It wasn't until after the war that, uh, that Catholics and other Christian theologians began to realize that that assumption needed to be critiqued. And once that happened, that opened the floodgates to all kinds of reconceptualizations, to reappraisals, to getting into a theology that that um, uh, was in the background of the Second Vatican Council. At the Council itself, this um, you know, Adam Adam mentioned correctly that. Um, you know, once the blood curse charge was repudiated at the council, nobody really, except the wacky fringe, brings it up again. Um, but there was something else at work too, as as we've both mentioned, and that is there was this craving for dialogue and for real understanding, and you can't have that kind of intimate conversation religiously if in the if in your heart of hearts you want to convert these people to your own way of thinking and not hear their own experiences of God, and so this also relates to the the absence of conversionary campaigns anymore uh, on the part of the Catholic Church, and in fact some documents have stated that. Um, and I, uh, there, let, let me just end that little sort of line of thinking by saying that um, I would like to think that today on the part of Catholic officials and the church at large, and this is growing, that that dialogue with Jews is desirable because we learn more about God from talking with people who have had a long history of relationship with God in terms of their covenantal life with God and and what could be better for a religious person than learning more about God? And and uh, and that's the fruit of the dialogue that 
we now are blessed to have, as Pope Francis has said on multiple occasions. So if I could just mention one other thing about Paul being cited in Nostratate, because this is um, important, you know, so Phil noted this, and it's, it's um, you know, if you sort of read the document, kind of easy to overlook, um, the absence of other documents, uh, the, uh, the absence of other traditional sources, that is the uh, Second Vatican Council, you know, sort of in, in thinking about sort of how to how to compose this 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 text, um, relies especially heavily on Paul, and um, I want to say not a new reading of Paul, but a distinctive reading of Paul, and I would actually say a, a more accurate reading of Paul to ground these theological claims. There really was not much else to use. That is, if you read other church documents, they often refer to, you know, this 4th century writer, or that 11th century writer, uh, or, you know, this document from Trent or, or something. Um, Nostratate really finds itself, uh, the, the, drafters of, the drafters of Nostratate found themselves um, sort of limited in the sources that were available to them. Now, the flip side to that, and this is a good one, is that in returning to scripture, in returning to Paul, right, he, of course, has enormous weight. And so, you know, they could have quoted, uh, you know, Aquinas, or I mean, whoever, you know, just sort of pull any random name out. Augustine. Augustine, Aquinas, whoever, you know, forget whether that, you know, what, what they said. But to go back to Paul makes it, I think, highly significant. And so in some ways, it's kind of an irony that they had to return to the earliest Christian writer. To the sources. To the sources of, of, uh, of Christian faith. And I think it therefore gives the document a sort of additional heft. And I would say sort of, you know, incidentally also provided sort of a, 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 an impetus for sort of a new reading of Paul. And that's something that's been happening, you know, sort of very actively in, in, in the scholarly world um, over the last few decades as well. And that's that was the point of Vatican II, was to go back to the sources. Although I have to say, as a fully post-Vatican II Catholic myself, guys, how did you miss Paul? How did we how did we miss that? That's so clear in Paul, yeah. in Romans in particular, right? So this is a really important question. Um, and to give it an inadequate but brief answer, um, I think we've come to recognize more and more that sometimes People read the scriptures in order to confirm what they already think. And so if you are reading Paul with the um, presupposition that he is no longer Jewish and has become a new religion, you know, a member of a new religion called Christianity, which, by the way, was a word that didn't even exist yet when Paul wrote his letters then you're going to read Paul in a way that's going to confirm an anti-Jewish bias. And one of the, one of the uh, I think, defining characteristics of Catholic understanding of how you read the Bible in general is that you must always read the Bible in the context of the period in which a specific text was composed. And you must understand the literary style of the time in which a text was written. And what is the author trying to persuade his readers of? Um, and to bear in mind, and this is going to sound perhaps um, disconcerting, but it's actually liberating, to understand that the, the writers of the New Testament, for example, we're not thinking of people living 2,000 years later on a continent they didn't know existed, um, speaking languages and in societies with forms of government that they wouldn't have imagined. Um, they were 
we would believe as Catholics that the New Testament writers were inspired to address the spiritual needs of their contemporaries and their communities. Uh, and when we read that with, when we read their texts with our 2000 year later perspective in our consciousness, then it becomes much more spiritually enriching to ask ourselves, so what does their message in the first century mean for us today? And particularly in terms of this conversation, what does it mean for a post-Noster Etate, post-Shoah church to read Paul as saying the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, as he says in Romans 11? So, and I think this is, the, we Catholics ought to uh, you know the the song that we sing um, uh, at, at mass. We hold uh, uh, we hold sacred things in earthen vessels. Right, the scripture is in a sense an earthen vessel. It's written in human languages. It's written which which makes it limited um, and and susceptible to misunderstanding. I think we Catholics have a real treasure in our teaching that we must have a conversation with the authors of the biblical text across the centuries. Uh, that way, it, as I said earlier, frees us up to understand the significance of their words for our lives today. And that takes us right to Holy Week. So with all this said, and knowing, unfortunately, that many Catholics don't get or take the time to really read the scriptures with that intentionality for a number of reasons, but how should Catholics hear these texts of Holy Week, which you know you will hear the Jews? How do we hear that in the right way? So this is a, an ongoing um, tension, an, an ongoing topic that we still need to be, we as Catholics need to be really um, concerned about. You, you mentioned the Jews, and that specifically is a phrase in the Gospel of John whose passion narrative, in other words, the parts of the Gospel that tell the stories of Jesus' arrest and his um, hearings and his eventual execution, um, his passion narrative is read in its entirety uh, on Good Friday. The other three Gospels, the so-called synoptic Gospels that are very similar to one another, they rotate through on the previous Sunday at the beginning of Holy Week um, on a three-year cycle. So one year will be Mark and then Matthew and then Luke. And, and they have their, their issues, too, that we could discuss. But the, the, but the use of the, the term in Greek, hoiudaioi, the Jews, as it's usually translated in the Gospel of John, is reflecting a polemical situation in the first century that is a, uh, a dispute between Jews who believe that God has raised the crucified Jesus to transcendent life and other Jews who do not find that persuasive or believable. And uh, we don't have the time here to look into the details, but within the gospel itself, you can see that there has been, uh, shortly before the writing of this gospel account, which is 60 or more years after the death of Jesus, and after the Roman destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70, this gospel is written around 90, 100, can't be precise, but, but the, that gospel is reflecting the anger of its writers against other Jews that have rejected the preaching of Jesus as raised that, that are, is being given to them, is being proclaimed. 
And that anger shapes the gospel in some ways, most particularly with this phrase, hoi you die, hoi, popping up all over the place. In fact, in most of the gospel scenes, everybody in the scene is Jewish. Jesus himself, his disciples, his mother, his, you know, his followers and so forth. There's a couple of Gentiles, but most influentially Pontius Pilate, you know, who, who appear. But it, it's really all about Jews. And so to constantly hear this, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews in the gospel of John 70 times or so, is, is kind of strange if you think about the historical context. You know, it's like saying, um, you know, the Americans went to um, uh, the White House to give a message to the president. It makes it sound like the president is not American or something. And, and, and similarly in the Gospel of John. So it, it is a concern that it, are, are our congregations as Catholics sort of getting an unintended refresher course in anti-Judaism when at Good Friday they cry out in the voice of, quote unquote, the Jews, crucify him, crucify him. The intention of that is to have us reflect on our own guilt and how our own sinfulness, this is a teaching that goes to the Council of Trenton and before, uh, that, that led Jesus to the cross. But is that what our congregations are really feeling, or are they thinking they're play-acting the role of the quote-unquote the Jews who are the ones responsible for the death of Jesus, which of course is contrary to Catholic teaching as we now have, have just been discussing. So this is, um, this is an ongoing concern. Can the lectionary, the, the, the selection of the reading for Good Friday be um, um, edited in a way that many other gospel and, and other scriptural lections are, where you you have, you know, Isaiah chapter, I'm just pulling numbers out of the air here, but you might have a reading from Isaiah 11, verses 2, 3, 17 through 24. Why cannot something like that be happening with the passion narrative on Good Friday? Um, and maybe the other uh, on Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday as well, um, because of a pastoral concern. You know, the preacher cannot be expected every Good Friday to talk about anti-Judaism. That's not the purpose of the Good Friday liturgy. But that would not be so necessary if the lection itself were more carefully uh, presented. And and so this is something that, that's not easy to do or to to uh, really um, uh, think through, but we've got to be doing that if we really want to remove forever this legacy of anti-Judaism connected with the death of Jesus. And I believe that the missalette, which people are following along with, does include a note from the U.S. bishops here in the United States saying that this is not to be understood this way. They do try to make it clear. I think it's a question of the participants actually taking that in and being intentional, as you said, when they come to that narrative, not to be play acting, but to realize where the real culpability is, is in Christian and Catholic theology within each and every one of us participating in that liturgy. Absolutely. And of course, that uh, one, one wonders and one hopes if one actually reads those uh, things in the missalette, you know, these disclaimers. Uh, it's also ironic because the pra- as, in, in, as far as I understand it, the practice of breaking up the, the lengthy passion narrative reading into speaker parts where you have a narrator and you have Jesus and you have Pilate and you have the people and you know you have different people sort of role playing the characters in the gospel that actually started at the 
at the suggestion of the Missolette companies. And so, uh, so with the best of intentions in order to try and involve the congregation more in the reading, inadvertently you may be undercutting the message of the caveat expressed in, you know, the church teaches that Jews are not responsible for the death of Jesus collectively or something like that, but it's, it's more complicated. And um, again, reforms in the liturgy take a lot of time and a lot of work. And, um, and this is one of them, I think, that many people concerned about these issues uh, point to as an ongoing concern. Interesting. Adam, you know, as someone who is Jewish, what do you hear when you hear those texts? I mean, I, I've I've been to many of these these services. Um, I would say probably in almost every case, uh, the priest or someone would 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 attempt to contextualize these. I've, that is, I've heard someone say something to provide the sort of insights that. Um, let's say scholars have, have developed about sort of the context of these texts, right? That, that John is not a, a verbatim, you know, eyewitness account of Jesus's time, but reflects the tensions of the, the late first century and, and his, his involvement with, with uh, other Jews. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm heartened by the, you know, the sort of disclaimers. I mean, the other thing I, I mean, I, I, I will say at least, um, Fortunately, I think in, 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 in the context here at, at St. Joseph's University and, and being in Philadelphia is that our students seem to know almost nothing about these, these, old, uh, these old claims, these, these, these problematic theologies. In some ways, I'm, I'm almost kind of astounded that they, that they don't know some of this stuff. You know, it's almost like kind of a, a sort of cultural illiteracy, um, but a good version of it. You know, students don't seem to have picked up on these ideas because of the good work that's been done. Most of the students we have are, are Catholic, and therefore there's an assumption that because of the nature of the church, there's there's some control sort of top down about textbooks and teaching and catechism so that these ideas don't, you know, sort of... You know, linger around. I suspect that in, in in less hierarchical churches, these sorts of negative claims. I mean, uh, a problematic understanding of John, for example. I, I imagine that there's more that I would find troubling. Um, you know, my experience is, is is largely anecdotal. I will also say, I mean, you know, you asked sort of a, a question about you know sort of. What do I hear? Respond. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of talking about good stuff, which is probably nice to you know, sort of focus on as well. I do think that the uh, curricula, as well. I mean, from 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 again, sort of you know, an anecdotal sense. I mean, I think that the scholarly views have been attempted to be disseminated. That is, it is not a kind of vast divide, I think, from what people would learn in a seminary, and in this case, a Protestant or Catholic seminary, and the, the, some of these issues that, that, that scholars are working on, um, certainly in what we'd call sort of mainline or, or Catholic seminaries, I do think, and you know, I have colleagues who teach in these places, um, that there is an openness to this sort of historical investigation, and it receives explicit support in uh, in, in Catholic statements, as, as Phil said. The church encourages a sort of historical approach to these texts, and, and therefore, 
I do think that some of these ideas are, are, are being shared outside the West, Western Europe, America, Canada. Um, I, I think there's probably less attention to these issues. It's a complicated question, but in a place like America with interreligious friendships and recognition of, of sort of diversity, um, that's a good setting for these types of historical understandings of texts for sensitivity to emerge. And that leads into my next question. What does the future hold? And you've kind of alluded to some of it, Adam, with the sense that it's not like this everywhere, that there's work to be done. We're not progressing evenly throughout the world. What do you see looking ahead the next five to 10 years in Jewish-Catholic relations, areas of dialogue that will unfold? Well, let me flag uh, or sort of raise, I think, a very um, sort of very welcome trend that's happened maybe over the last few decades, but there's been certainly on the Jewish side, um, an effort to kind of deepen theological reflection on uh, on the other. Often, of course, that means in the context of Jewish-Christian dialogue, um, that's the sort of natural thing that happens to us in the, in, 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 in the West, um, especially in America because of the numbers. Um, there is a growing interest in uh, sort of Jewish theological circles in grappling with diversity, in particular, sort of thinking about the significance of Jesus's Jewishness and thinking about how Christians read texts certain ways and what it is that we can learn from them and, and vice versa. We're going to be having a conference that we sponsor um, in uh, in the late summer, uh, through uh, through our university and some partner uh, universities, um, dealing with the the Jewishness of Jesus um, for both Jews and Christians. And so, what we found, I think, is not just a kind of um, uh, sort of reactive uh, Jewish position that is, you know, do we like this statement? Do we like that statement? But really, beginning in um, I guess you go back to the 1970s, but but really beginning around the year 2000, and then in, in, in the wake of, of a statement that was released in, in the year 2000, there have been additional Jewish statements that, um, in a nutshell, seek to treat Christianity and discuss Christianity not as a generic other, that is, Christianity is sort of thrown in the mix with you know Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam, but rather to think about Christianity as in some ways, and, and I think historically accurately, of course, closer to Judaism with a, uh, how do I say, sort of, sort of with insights to share with a kind of recognition of the richness of another tradition, the way that um, Christians are moved, the way that Christian liturgy functions, right? I mean, I think that there's a growing openness to this on the Jewish side and beginning hints of this developing. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's, you know, a very significant shift away from a, you know, sort of outside looking on at a process that's happening. Um, and it's a natural development. It's a natural development of relationships. It's a natural development of comfort levels. And uh, I think I think that's you know very significant. Let me leave it at that. Let me let Phil have a chance as well about some of the contemporary trends, future trends. So um, before talking about future trends, I'd like to jump back one second to an earlier 
topic that we discussed um, about um, liturgy and preaching and the lectionary and, and so on. Um, I think a rule of thumb that, and I'll focus on Catholics, that, that Catholics can sort of think about is if it's to imagine or actually have the experience of if you brought a Jewish friend to this service, would you feel uncomfortable with any aspect of the service, whether it's the the lectionary readings or the preaching or some other prayers, whatever? Develop a sensitivity to how that would sound to Jewish ears. Um, it can. It's a. It's. Uh, it awakens you to certain things. Um, I'll tell a quick story. There's a. We have the habit at, at St. Joseph's, being a Jesuit university and a Catholic university, that we begin the academic year with the Mass of the Holy Spirit sometime in the end of September, once things have gotten underway a little bit. And depending upon the. Um, the options in the lectionary for the reading. Sometimes the reading um, uh, is uh, beginning with uh, the, uh, it's from the Gospel of John and it's the Doubting Thomas episode and it begins, at least in this lectionary um, definition, it begins where, and the, and the apostles were in hiding for fear of the Jews. Uh, and then the way this, the narrative goes. Well, you know, I feel very uncomfortable, uh, and fortunately our uh, celebrants are aware of these issues as well, but, you know, when I'm sitting among the faculty and my friend Adam is sitting next to me, perhaps, to hear that the apostles were hiding for fear of the Jews is very disconcerting. And, and we talked a little bit about why that is. But, but I, I mention this as an illustration of the sensitivity that I think we need to develop. And it's not just concerning the passion narratives, although that's a big topic for sure. But I think we all have, we, we Catholics, we Christians, uh, because of that teaching of contempt for so many centuries and the blood curse um, idea, that we've developed a, what I've started to call an oppositional imagination, that we imagine that Christianity and Judaism are intrinsically opposed to one another. Um, whereas we understand each other to both to be in covenant with the same God, and so that doesn't really make any sense. This will show up, for example, in lectionary readings that deal with Jesus' interaction with Pharisees, for instance. And, and if the presupposition in one's mind is this oppositional dynamic, then Jesus is going to be thought of as opposed to Judaism of his day, which is totally false. And the Pharisees become emblematic of those who are opposed to Jesus because he is opposed to the Judaism of his day. And and I think it's going to take a while to unlearn these habits. And I'm afraid too often I hear people slip back into this sort of default position of oppositional identification. And any criticism of Jesus by a character in the Gospels is immediately thrown into this 
Jesus versus Judaism, Christianity versus Judaism sort of dynamic, which is the furthest thing from the truth and relates to what Adam was just saying about the Jewishness of Jesus being something that we really need to retrieve and and uh, and appreciate. In terms of the of the future, um, Adam, uh, I think alluded to to this that I think it's very positive that there have been. Um, in connection with the 50th anniversary of Nostra Aetate in 2015, there were two prominent Orthodox Jewish statements and a French Jewish statement that was um, that included Orthodox and conservative and and liberal forms of Judaism, all of which were were engaging with Christianity as Christianity as a specifically um, non-Jewish. Uh, religious tradition with its own understandings and its own doctrines and theologies that are different from Jews and different from Judaism, but that nonetheless we can resonate together about, that we know that there are similarities, even in the way that we Christians talk about the Trinity, um, is not totally alien to Jewish thinking about how is the transcendent God effective in history, which is part of what the Trinity is about. So I'm I'm hopeful that after Nostra Aetate, when it took us a cup, literally a couple of decades to learn how to talk to one another, Another after centuries of avoiding that. Now that we know how to talk to one another, and as Adam said, a sufficient amount of trust has been built up between us that we can really probe some of these issues that we thought were so divisive that maybe are not so divisive if you look at them within a different frame of reference. And and therefore, as I said earlier, I think, you know, we have we have this sculpture on our campus of uh, depicting synagogue and church um, using a traditional medieval mode of portraying them as female figures. We have this sculpture for the 50th anniversary of Nostra Aetate that depicts them studying their sacred text together. Synagogue and Ecclesia, synagogue and church in our time, which is, of course, what Nostra Aetate means in Latin. Um, I think that's what is the future, that it is a, and, and as Francis, Pope Francis has said, it is a genuine gift of God that we are able to have these kinds of conversations even as we're trying to overcome some inherited reflexes from the past that would have us n- not be so um, engaging with one another. But that's the future, I think. I'll just um, I'll just add a um, a funny observation. I was in I was in um, synagogue with my students this weekend. They have to do a visit uh, sometime during the semester to a service, and I um, give them the opportunity to come with me, or they can go on their own. They may have a you know, friend and friend of the family who will take them. And so I was um, this Saturday with uh, a few students, and this not uncommon and just standing there with outsiders that is with visitors in this case christian visitors um i hear things differently and it's uh if if you want to if you want to if you want to go to your 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 church or your synagogue or mosque and hear it differently bring an outsider (laughs) because you pay attention in a different way it wasn't it wasn't um it wasn't anything uh, for example, the, the, the rabbi said, but, you know, just even in his sermon, you know, he talked about sort of us and we, and I thought, yeah, that's, 
uh, an interesting observation when, when we also have, you know, sort of guests and outsiders here, sort of how they hear this. And it's, 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 it's sort of, a, it's, a, it's a welcome um, sort of awareness. It's kind of like wearing different glasses to, uh, to something that's actually very familiar. And all of a sudden it's a little less familiar. That's great. It sounds as if there's a lot of hope. A, a lot of work has been done. A lot remains to be done, but that there is a lot of hope. Professor Philip Cunningham, Professor Adam Gregerman from St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, thank you for being with us today. Our pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much for asking us to join you. Hope you'll come back soon. Of course. Thanks. Thank you. And you've been listening to Professor Philip Cunningham and Professor Adam Gregerman of St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. They are the co-directors of that school's Institute for Jewish-Catholic Relations. And we're grateful to them for taking the time to join us here at CatholicPhilly.com. We're coming to you from the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Thanks so much to our publisher, Archbishop Nelson Perez, to our editor, Matt Gambino, to you, our listeners, and of course, to our Lord, without whom none of this would be possible. You can find us online at catholicphilly.com, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Catholic Philly. I'm your host, Gina Christian, and until next time, may God bless and keep you.